Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And this is The Ready State. You got it! Today on The Ready State, we have lecturer, author, instructor, incredible human, Gray Cook. He is the founder of the functional, co-founder, I should say, of Functional Movement Systems. If you've ever seen the FMS, he has been lecturing about movement quality and trying to establish movement baselines and unravel what feels like a Gordian knot of human function for a long time. He's also a dad of three girls and volunteers at his youngest daughter's school teaching gym class once a week and we'll talk a lot about with him in that ep- about that with him in this episode. I love it. Like he for me is one of the most seminal thinkers about the complexity of human movement environment and you're like any teaches gym class once a week. And uh if it's uh it should be very obvious to you in this episode that he and Kelly have a deep bromance. Even though we're kept apart by the world. People enjoy this. There are great takeaways about thinking differently about how our young people interact with the environment and what we can do to remediate and improve that environment and relationship. Enjoy. Hey, today on The Ready State is a man that I am really excited to have on. And it's good that uh, geographically we have this thing called a craton, which is the the central mass of a, of a continent between us. Because if Gray lived on the West Coast... Or I lived You're on just the East trying Coast. to show off right now because we have Gray Cook on the podcast. Look, I, look, I'm not Cray-tong. saying on Crayton. It is my great pleasure to introduce to <laughs> our family and friends, ladies and gentlemen, Gray Cook. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Look, it is really difficult to run around the world today and not run into your thinking. And from really granular, you know, what people don't understand is you know, you are one of the people and your staff and, and Lee have really shaped how we have thought and quantified movement, how we've been able to communicate the language of movement. And so what better person to help us untangle where we are in the kind of the, the state of children's health and the state of child development than part of the, the man who kind of really has defined it and sort of codified it, really. I mean, you you gave a measurement language to to us all for the first time. And, and I'm going to say way back, I became, I mean, you, I became aware in 96, 97. I mean, that's when you really kind of hatched your, your evil plan to get us to all talk about these things. <laughs> no, it, it, it was really weird. It, it hit me um, in about 94, 95, because I was only four or five years out of PT school teaching workshops on functional exercise. Do, basically talking about some of the same postures and patterns you and I are talking about today. But then I realized, oh my gosh, every person here has a different vision of what function is. We all agree on impairment measures like a range of motion problem or strength problem, but people with the exact same problems at their knee or shoulder have completely different movement behaviors. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be looking at those parts, but when the behaviors aren't measured, Oh my gosh, that's that's that is a baseline or a variable that that we're not tracking. So a lot of times we would think we helped someone, but if we watch them walk out to the car after therapy, I'm like, it doesn't look much different than it did coming in. We better raise the bar on us because it's not high enough. So, so uh, you you mentioned this just then, but tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you say that movement is a behavior. Well, um. I can, I can use many different examples, but some of the, some of the best ones are when people have the exact same orthopedic diagnosis of a ankle problem, shoulder problem, knee or hip problem. But when you watch the way 
their personality, their anatomy, their different dimensions, deal with that. One person loses a lunge, one person can't touch their toes, and one person can't balance anymore. And they've got the exact same perspective from their physician and their insurance company, but it's on the therapist or chiropractor, trainer, strength coach to really say, okay, these things are wrong wrong anatomically, but it's almost like saying when, when you have a problem with your phone, it's either the hardware or the software. And, you know, what we're seeing is they have the same hardware problem, but their software processes the way they choose to compensate or avoid or neglect. So it is a whole separate thing. The way you choose to deal with your pain, limitation, weakness, inability is literally as unique as your personality. And it can be captured and it doesn't require, you know, a huge amount of equipment, but we got to start looking somewhere. And that's where we started saying, you know, people aren't really screening movement. They're screening body parts and assuming movement. And so we've got two people that can't do a squat and one person can actually assume sort of happy baby position in yoga. They, they have all the range of motion to squat, but loaded or on their feet, they really just, they don't, they don't get down. And I'm like, we used to think that was a mobility problem, but we just proved it wasn't. This person has a stability reason for not being able to get into that really nice squat position. The other person obviously has a mobility problem, but when you look at what people like myself and Kelly and a lot of other people around the world were doing, they were actually being fed the same movement nutrient for a completely different movement expression. And we, we patted ourselves on the back. We, we thought we were doing all the right things, but we were leaving out that one very important variable um, of what happens when they go back to real life. What, what are the movement behaviors like? And we said, if we could know what's wrong with you and also see your movement behaviors, we may be able to get you on a different path and, and even predict how things are going to go or how long this is going to take just by seeing how quickly your behaviors change without us teaching you. It's not, not about coaching. When we reset something at the neurological level, your balance gets better and you can't explain it. That actually was a subconscious adjustment. And that's what we're talking about, about looking at movement behaviors. And that goes across the lifespan now. We're really interested in following those movement behaviors across all the different hiccups in life, the, the surgeries and the you know accidents and all the different things that happen to us. How does that impact our movement behavior? And what we realized is a lot of people, when they come through that first injury or whatever, they lose movement behavior points so much so that female athletes after an ACL injury and surgery and rehabilitation have the exact same average movement screens as fit 60 year old women. They never get back what they had to begin with. And it doesn't mean they can't. It means rehab was way too focused on that knee and not focused enough on Debbie. Wow. Interesting. You know, in this language, you're saying moving behavior, but what the, the root building block of that is a language that you guys have developed. And that is the word, this pattern word, right? Which is sort of a, a, relate, a set of relationships of how the limb is moving in space functionally around, you know, the sort of the core movements of the human being. Can you, you elaborate a little bit more? Because I think in our heads, sometimes we think, oh, I'm a special snowflake and that I am this unique solution to these complex interactions with the environment. But these fundamental behaviors are 
endemic and indigenous to all humans and they represent themselves in universal behaviors even though the length of our limbs may be a little bit different can you can you elaborate on what you mean by that pattern kind of uh root position block idea i will and it's and it's really really neat when when we look at other health metrics like blood pressure or eye charts we can almost go to the world health organization we can go worldwide and find agreement on vital signs um, blood sugar levels whatever you want to talk about the world health organization stops agreeing about human movement at 21 months now that means as a world health organization we do agree in human movement patterns right up to 21 months and what i'm saying is they got these windows or developmental milestones and if your child isn't rolling by a certain window or a certain time span as long as we're th they're within that we don't want to see mom in the pediatrician's office but if your child doesn't roll crawl kneel squat stand step walk run by certain windows, we want you to come and bother us with this because they should be acquiring these movement pattern-based behaviors, whether you coach them or not. Meaning, isn't it, these, these patterns spontaneously emerge out of us as long as we're fed, sleeping, and have, aren't in pain. These, these little baby blobs will actually program their own software and get reciprocal patterning and they will they will get split stance movements and they'll know when to jump with both feet and they just pattern this and the funny thing is all the way across the lifespan the world health organization has pretty good information about every other organ system in our body except the biggest one the musculoskeletal neurological system interplay and the funny thing is if these movement patterns these abilities to get up from the ground and, and, and you go through just a bunch of nice little movement patterns. If we agree that that's the original operating system and the World Health Organization says you should have these postures and patterns. And if you don't, something's wrong. And then all of a sudden, my 11 year old breaks her ankle or I throw out my back. Everybody's going to go right to the ankle and back and as they should make sure it's safe, make sure the part is well healed, but nobody ever walks you through the standard vital signs of, are you back to what you were or is something permanently gone? There is no right answer. Sometimes, you know, Kelly, I got, I got some injuries that I'm still wearing and so do you, but I know what the limitations with those are, or I know which ones I've fully recovered from and believe it or not, these movement behavior patterns really are the seal that tell us they're recovered. You're intuitive looking at movement. You've cleared a pro athlete to go back and do X. You were looking at a few things. All we tried to do was put that into an eye chart or a BP cuff. So people that don't have the kind of reps that you and I have can actually work with movement vital signs. And the funny thing is, it's not about strength or range of motion. It's about what you do with it. So it's almost like looking into somebody's eye and saying, no, you got great vision. No, their behavior of reading an eye chart is what I need as a confirmation. If they can't read the eye chart, then I look in the eye. It's the other way around. So we've always said to a lot of, a lot of people, the screen tells you if you need deeper assessment and if you can at least screen the basics of these patterns. We're not policing perfection, but hit the basics and hit some basic symmetry and move on. And the funny thing is, 
a lot of people who are seeking a higher level of athleticism have lost one of these one of these patterns. And, and we see fitness embracing it now. Everybody's bear crawling and everybody's doing stuff. But it's like, if you can bear crawl pretty good, that's probably the one thing you don't need to do. If you can't bear crawl, you need to get on a continuum to get there because you're going to reinstall a behavior that's going to go on autopilot to help you be a better gyroscope while you're walking and texting at the same time. And so it's all these subconscious behaviors that we have that's basically just reciprocal gait. If somebody said duck really quick, would you bend at your waist or would you drop down into a squat? Well, if we're in a if we're in a country where people don't even wear shoes that much, they're going to drop into a squat. And if we're walking with a few people in a briefcase, they're just going to sort of lower their self as minimal as they have to do in a very awkward <laughs> position. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're zoo humans now. They, they live in a, a Petri dish or a subway or a cubicle. Zoo, so they, zoo they humans. Some of these patterns, yeah. So quick question, and this is, uh, I apologize, this may be a, a question that um, you and Kelly know and understand, but are movement behavior patterns the same thing as functional movement? And if not, what's the difference? And the reason I ask is I feel like, especially being in the health and fitness space, functional movement is one of those terms, which I think you probably coined, that is now bandied about um, and seems to mean different things to different people. So it, it help does. me clarify it, that it's a little almost, bit. It, it's, almost like, it, it's almost like saying, you know, whole foods or, 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 you know, it, it's become, everybody thinks the movements they're doing are functional because if you look at a definition of function, it sort of means purposeful. We're going one step deeper in that if I have somebody who looks good on a movement screen of just these basic patterns, uh, reaching, stepping, squatting, lunging, things like that. If they don't have any problems, but they still move like crap in the gym, a good coach can roll with that. They know the verbal and tactile cues to get you in a better aware state. If you can't cover these patterns at a level of comp competency that we would consider average vision or average blood pressure, if you drop below that cut, it's almost like if we try to coach you, it's Charlie Brown's teacher. You don't hear any of the cues because you can't feel the taglines that we're used to coaching with. So you are actually at a disadvantage because your body awareness, ears and eyes are far less information saturated than if you did have ankle mobility or you did have equal rotation to your left and right. So the very first thing I got to think about if we're going to try to get somebody moving in a, in a functional way for baseball, good, good shoulder mobility, good hip mobility is find out, can they even engage the lesson plan of the instruction of the conditioning that Kelly and I would do or the sports specificity that the sport coach would do. But if we find that you've got a few limitations, it doesn't matter if, if it's a tightness or a weakness or whatever, you can't cover the pattern so you can't even do the next thing because almost everything we do in exercise and athletics is built on one of these fundamental patterns. And if you think about the elegance of the way our brain was created, we literally have a few basic reaching, stepping, turning, twisting, squatting patterns. And then everything from a golf swing to Bruce Lee's punch is nothing but a derivative or a combination of a couple of those. So we, we work with this small bag of impure patterns that aren't restricted by anything 
And then we repeat those, we get stronger, we get more self-aware and stuff like that. And so the only reason that that we're trying to screen movement is everybody trying to do functional exercise. Sometimes the functional exercise is exactly what's going to rip you apart because you don't have the functional pattern that that functional exercise is going with. So we tell everybody, you know, we're rednecks, but we prepare the soil, then we drop the seed. So I've always said the, the lesson plan, the exercise, the new coaching cue, that's the seed. We got to keep checking that soil. And it's really weird for a lot of people because a hundred years ago, we didn't have to check the soil. I'll give you this one statistic. I think um, when my grandfathers both went to World War II, the minimum amount of pull-ups to even serve in any branch of the armed services was six. I'm pretty sure that our friend, uh, Dr. Mark Benden recently told us that something, some high percentage of 18 year olds can't even qualify for military service. I mean, I wanted to say it was like 80% no longer qualify for military service for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them being obesity, um, and, other factors. I think drug abuse is a big issue as well. Yeah, it, it is. And, and, and I was going to fast forward you current day right now, you can be an army ranger with a minimum of five pull-ups. So what was considered, you can't even put on a uniform if you can't pull six. Now, as long as you can pull five, you're special ops. And, and I don't think we lowered those numbers um, for any reason other didn't just keep, get enough people to serve, but that's sort of the way big business and big government works. If the numbers aren't right, we just lower or just, raise yeah. the scale. <laughs> but at some point, I think that, you know, I mean, JFK uh, was sort of a pioneer on the president's council of physical fitness. He didn't implement that because he thought kids were going to be obese one day or anything. He realized that a lot of people were talking to him if the trend of physical fitness continues. You gotta realize he's, he's a president before I'm born. If this trend continues, which it did, we won't have enough people to serve by the time your grandchildren are here. And that prediction held true, unless we lower the, the standards. The presidential physical fitness test was really <laughs> just about getting me to be fit enough to serve. In a war yeah. that exists yeah. yet. That's some sneaky, yeah. sneaky yeah, business. Yeah, that is some serious sneaky stuff. Okay, I really want to move on. I really want to move on to talking about kids because I think you're going to have so much to share. But um, okay. really quick before we get there, and and I'm going to preface this by saying that this is a, a constant question in our, our household, um, but we have a lot of listeners here. Why should they care about their movement slash mobility? Um, we find that people don't care until they can't do something. Um, is, do you have any way to convince people that they should care before they hurt themselves or can't do something they love? It's an investment in your future independence. And I think that's, that's the one thing I can surely tell you. Anytime I've lost my independence, anytime I've been on, I, I spent half my high school career on crutches, but anytime you lose your independence and the ability to sustain that, you got to start thinking about it because whether it's just a injury that you could have easily avoided or an erosion that you're causing to your knee because you simply won't listen to the signs and symptoms that <laughs> you're running a little too much with a little less integrity than you used to. It, it doesn't really matter. That's, that's what's happening. And, and I think the, the way I best describe it is we've become such creatures of comfort that we've learned how at every turn in our life to avoid discomfort, we only now experience two things. That's pleasure and pain. 
right? There's no discomfort. But if, if you believe that a, a day in the life of everybody's got a yin yang symbol, meaning you're going to have to make it through a little bit of good stuff and a little bit of bad stuff, um, it's not all going to be good, but it doesn't all have to be pain. So working out, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, getting to bed on time, all these things can somehow interrupt your schedule or be a little uncomfortable sometimes, but none of them are painful. It's just, it's just a bad habit. Try to get an adult to cut sugar out of their diet. You would think that you were asking for a kidney and they start bargaining and was a Hershey bar too much. And I'm like, dude, just don't eat sugar for a week. Come on. And, and you find that a lot of the territory that I, that I'm getting ready to protect in my everyday life is more of a sedentary comfort zone. It's really got nothing to do with my, my long-term life. So I think we've, we've become accustomed to being just way more comfortable than we're supposed to be. And then, so when pain does come up, we panic and then we actually lose our independence for a little bit, a little while, or we lose our ability to do that thing for a little while. And once you've lost it enough, you know, you, you, you learn your lesson, you start being more proactive, you start, you know, it's just like going on a trip. I mean, how many times do you have to get lost before you start using your GPS or printing off a map? And, and that's, that's what has happened to our culture. We used to know how to manage ourselves and how to fix ourselves. And sure, we needed docs and physical therapists sometimes, but for the most part, your grandma could keep you pretty healthy just by <laughs> dropping some pearls on you every now and then. Well, I tell you what, I just, I just had to step out of the room. I got rid of my kids' beds and all their shoes and, uh, and all their clothes. So now they're just going to be cold, a little tougher. Look, uh, one of the thing, mer- patterns that's emerging from this conversation is I hear that there are just fundamental shapes and movements that are just the, the, the signatures of being a human being, walking, hinging, squatting, getting them down off the ground. These are, these are the things that literally are signatures of, of humanity. I also heard that <clears throat> these things develop and are natural, like our brains are hardwired. I mean, the glute, it exists in its shape and the length of the femur sort of in the, the architecture of the hip imply certain patterns. And if we just look at all the kids on the planet, they all are universal in the way that they learn to develop this. So what I'm hearing underneath there is this sort of this dynamic between the environment creates this normal normative movement language for the human and then something changes. Is is that right? That's, that exa- you- that's exactly right. And I think the, 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 the thing that I get from that World Health Organization study is that regardless of climate or culture or race or any other situation, as long as you're loving your baby for the first 21 months, they will express the, the shapes, the patterns, the postures in such a unique, excuse me, a, a, a uniquely general way that, that every baby is agreed upon, we should be doing this by here. And then at 21 months, culture starts taking over. Cultures that have a, a dominant way a boy should act or a dominant way a girl should act or cultures that put kids to work really early or cultures that allow children to get way more obese than they need to. That's when everything changes. And so we have absolutely no movement vital signs after 21 months, but that's when culture does start imprinting these kids. And, and one of the things, Kelly, I don't know if you know this, but you know how many Polynesian guys are doing great in the NFL now. And if you go to Samoa or something like that, there's, there's no gyms. 
these guys are big and huge and they can still climb a tree and do stuff. And they come to American football. They don't have any of the injuries that, that we imposed on people through athletics or stupid weight room antics and stuff like that. So they basically show up at the NFL in their twenties with a pristine 350 pound body and they can move around for eight years and they don't have these, you know, things where they have to walk like they could basically walk over a fire hydrant. That's how far their legs are apart all the time. They just move, but they have these, you know, uh, these, these tribal dances they do. And it's just, they, they, they very much embrace the exact same deep squats and, and ground pounding, thumping, stuff like that. And they just move. And what I think we do is we're trying to remanufacture movement. And what we've done is We've got to let movement come out and then reinforce that with a lot of the, the exercises and experience we create. But you said it right. It's a shape. If you can rock bottom that squat, I'll be honest with you. I don't care how you get there as long as it doesn't hurt because we can fix the rest of that later. But if you can't rock bottom a squat, I got a few questions that I'd like to ask your ankles and knees and hips and low back if you don't mind. <laughs> so, uh, Gray, you've mentioned the term movement vital signs a couple of times in this conversation. So I'm hoping you can sort of elaborate on what that means. And also because one of our goals with this season of our podcast is to try to give parents some practical information. Um, are there certain vital signs, movement vital signs that uh, parents, you know, even, even a lay person could see in their own kids? Yeah, it is 22 months. Is it too late at 22 months? Yeah, I mean, after that. Help. They're done. They're done. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just have another one and start working on that one. No, <laughs> here you go. Um, we, uh, Danielle and I worked today, we worked, uh, preschool through eighth grade through, through some movements, but here's some of the stuff we're looking for. Once we can see a child squat, we, we actually have them jump off the bleachers and try to stick a landing. And it is amazing. Uh, the kids that can't, but the wonderful, beautiful thing is they are so fricking plastic that by next week they can. And so once they can stick that landing, jumping off the first bleachers, we tell them to go get a beanbag and not do it with a beanbag on your head. And, and so they, they love physical obstacles and the way we've started teaching physical education. And it's almost just a little thought that I had one day. I'm like, no lesson plan, no exercises. We're going to impose physical obstacles that are going to be a one time drill or something that looks like a little bit of a ninja warrior course. And in the last 10 minutes of the 40 minute class, we're going to talk about who did well, who wants to do better next time and what can we do about it? And the funny thing is the imposition of the obstacle without the answer makes them pattern each other. Well, there's one kid getting over the plyo box and one kid not. Who do you think they're watching? They're watching the one getting over it. Maybe I do need to get my knee up there next time. We don't say a word. We scale it because we know about, you know, what these kids are doing. But that's really what we do. We give them a physical obstacle and let them solve the problem. I mean, that's what we do with math, right? We make them grind it out when they read. We make them, you know, do their do their calculation, show your work when you do your math. But the minute they can't get over the wall, the minute they can't hold on to the rings, we start telling them how to do it and doing it for them and giving them training wheels and stuff like that. And it's like, let them grind it, man, because that small amount of stress or discomfort is the trigger that causes that adaptive capacity, that extra awareness and stuff like that. And if you, you watch both, both the girls learn to walk, I mean, they would fall 80 times in a day. 
they didn't lose their temper. They didn't tweet about it. They didn't write a nasty <laughs> blog. They just got up and tried again. But the one thing they didn't do is the same pattern they did that caused them to fall. <laughs> they worked it out. A little bit of this language is what we call a constrained environment. Absolutely. You, can, you yes. constrain the environment to get the outcome. And in this case, the game of, hey, here's what you're sticking the landing looks like. And then stick the landing. And the constraint is I have to jump and land with my head, keeping, you know, keeping this beanbag on my head. Do you think that that could be a model? And what ways can we constrain that? Because I've heard a lot of people working with kids. It's all about games. But it's and we see that, I think, if even if we went back to hopscotch or we went back to some of the classic games we used to play as kids, the game itself taught the behavior, it taught the vital skill. And we uh, the the in ready to run or born to run. They talk about that. The Tamahurar Indians had a running game where they kicked a little ball and it taught the kids to take a really short step and they had to be able to move laterally and it constrained the pattern. And do you think that there are things that parents could do? to constrain the environment to have a better movement outcome without having to teach more or just automatically gets the better behavior? Yeah, but it's going to cost, uh, cost 10 bucks per kid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yep. All right. Yep. All right. Okay. So I'm in, I'm in for 10 bucks. What's it look Let's like? Let's hear it. All right. You know, the, the, the foam rolls we all use to try to feel a bit younger before we work out, we lay down on them, we roll yeah, around on them. Pool okay. toys, pool toys, right? Yeah. There you go. Now, um, I don't know why, but I think they're almost the same price if they're sliced in half. And I'm not talking about half in a shorter way. I'm talking about halfway. So you have a round top and a flat top. So imagine the, the densest foam roll, I guess, you know, four foot long or whatever, sliced in half long ways. Okay. Like a submarine sandwich. So we got a flat side and a round side. Last year at Christmas, Danielle and I, uh, uh, called our buddies that perform better and said, all right, I'm applying the gray cook discount. Give me as many <laughs> half foam rolls as you Thanks, can. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I, we went in and we gave every kid about uh, three weeks before Christmas their Christmas present. They got a half foam roll. And they're, you know, they turned them into swords and they were banging each other the head with them. I said, all right, let's go. And we put them flat side down and it gave us this nice sort of round top where we had to watch their feet because so many kids tried to stand flat on a round surface. Well, the first thing we did is said, no, use your whole foot. Let your foot. Oh, man, it was like it was lighting up their brain. We gave kids permission to go barefoot at school, right? And they're standing on their foam roll because we knew. Revolutionary. If we kid, yeah, if we didn't give the kid the foam roll, we'd be having like seven vats of hand sanitizer. No, it's your roll. Your feet are on it. You keep your feet on it. But <laughs> the funny thing was. We started doing a bunch of round top stuff, balancing. They're doing their surfer stance. They're trying to lunge. And we're just playing follow the leader or do what I do. And all of a sudden, we go down through the pattern. So before you know it, we're planking on it. We're, we're um, kneeling on it. And then I flip it over. And it's like a little rocker bottom thing. So the first thing I do is big guy on a little boat, right? So I'm, I'm sitting on it like a kayak with my butt at one end or the other. And the, the one thing we did is Danielle and I, we gave all the kids the four B's. Breathe, bend, balance, bounce. Everything you do is going to follow that sequence. So let's get your breath say, right. Say, say that again. Breathe, bend, balance, and bounce. Now, breathing isn't just about the way we tell our clients to breathe. We tell kids every breath uh, every situation has a breath. So when you're balancing, you're trying to tell your brain everything's okay. Just feel this and react to it. So we 
breathe down. We tell them, lengthen out your exhale, shorten your inhale. And we just show them how to breathe and we do a few examples. Whereas if you're fighting or punching or kicking, it's more of a exertion breath. So we say, if you're ever having difficulty with something, what's the first thing you're going to do? Check my breathing. How am I breathing? Am, am, am I relaxing myself? Just take a breath. Bending. That's, that's why mobility wad exists. And that's why FMS exists. Because most people are trying to do stuff their body won't even conform to. So we explore your bends. Can you touch your toes? Can you squat? Can you do things like this? Balance isn't just your equilibrium or balancing on your feet. It's how do you match your, your agonist antagonist? How do you, so it's everything that doesn't require energy storing. So it's, it's the way you would explode. Are you pushing equally off each feet? Do you have a balanced approach to what you're doing? Well, whenever you're having difficulty with balance, what are the two things you're supposed to question? Don't question your balance. Am I breathing correctly? And am I bending appropriately? Because if you put somebody on a wobble board, most people will go stiff-legged, not soften your legs, right? Uh, you guys got enough aquatic experience where you immediately soften your legs. But have you seen people riding a boat, <laughs> a speedboat? First thing you do is lock their knees. You're like, you haven't been on a boat very much, have you? <laughs> so, so you see people, you see brand new snowboarders doing that too. Just exactly. Like and, and Simplif simplify the system. There yeah. are too many variables. Let me just cancel some of these out. I won't breathe. I'll lock my knees out. Right. I'll have one thing I can move. That's my hip. So these kids take these foam rolls home. Now they got to bring them back every week. So you got to imagine mom's like, is this really necessary? And a kid's getting out of the car, smacking mom in the head with the foam roll. By Easter break, kids were coming to school saying, where can I get these? My mom wants to do it with me. She was having difficulty, but I told her to breathe a little bit and she got better. And then I showed her how to do that toe touch thing. And once she loosened up, it got even better. And now we're just going to watch TV standing on these things. So I, I guess to reverse the question on you, you said what can parents do? I have no idea, but if you send kids home with foam rolls and the four Bs, <laughs> they'll become a personal trainer in about and, two months. And it sounds like a two for one deal if I'm, if I'm doing my it math was. right. But no, that's that. I think it starts there. And, and I, I, I don't want to be the guy that says, and we got to cover the metabolism and all the muscle groups, because I'm telling you, it's neurological at this level. If, if we engage them neurologically in physical problem solving, it's like they, they're looking every week for me and Danielle to show them something that they can get good at it. Now we're doing flexed arm hangs. Now we're doing bear crawls. Now we're doing box jumps. We're doing uh, battling ropes. We're doing everything that doesn't look like a field or court sport because we're not trying to do athletics and PE. We're trying to do human movement. We know who the good athletes are, but they're no better in these things than everybody else, which is a level playing field, which a rising tide floats all boats. So we, we know who the athletes are, but they can't express these athletic sports specific patterns here. They've got to be plastic. They got to mold. They got to be on the fly. And so the coolest thing we did is I wanted to check and see which kids were doing the foam roll homework. And it was all the non-obvious athletes. Well, we did the foam roll and we had, I think it was 18 kids in that class. Well, as soon as half the kids tanked or, or came off their roll or weren't able to do Simon Says Balance, I got the remaining kids. I'm like, you're team one, you're team two. Team two was full of the studs, but we did an obstacle course and Danielle and I stacked it heavy on balance beams where if you fell off the beam, you had to go back. Guess which team won? The, the kids that look non-athletic. 
but they had gotten the command of their balance and they realized exactly what I said. You fall off the beam, you got to go back. So it was the tortoise and the hare. And that was a teaching moment. And now all the athletes got good balance too. And it was just one of those things where we didn't tell them, but we let those natural consequences emerge in, in, that's something you can't get back. They, I'm watching them now. We're not even calling out, check your breathing, check your bending, you know, or what's your flexibility or something like that. They just, it was, it was just a little mantra one day. I was just talking them through it. The funny thing was I did the exact same talk for our NFL team on the foam rolls and the guys got it better when I used the four B's for them too. So it's, <laughs> well, which is important because it, these skills scale. I mean, that's the fundamentals of, of these positions are sophisticated. And I personally know that when you're working at the top, whether you're solving a really complex problem for one of the world's best athletes, it is rooted in seeing the basics. And I think that's where people really lose the narrative is that the, the, the continuity of skill literally is the same from us working with these children all the way up. And so much of unraveling what looks like very complex motor, motor skills and motor patterns is really getting back to basics, back to minimums. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and when we do movement screens at that level, even though there's seven movement stations, only two of them aren't left right stations. You see what I'm saying? So there's a, there's a squat and a push up in there, but everything else is a left right representation. If you can't cover one of those movement patterns, you get a, you get a one on your movement screen, right? Well, we found that most pro athletes will have a one here, maybe even two. You get more than that, you're seeing somebody on their way out or somebody who's not going to be here long. And, and it's, it's just, you know, they are built to compensate. And because of the gladiator style life they've had, they're not going to get here in their pristine body. But if they've got too many options of movement taken away from them, then they're moving, you know, only in one dimension, which is going to telegraph their play or they're going to break down. And so, you know, we, we realize that it can't be perfect, but you're, but you're absolutely right. When we break it down to the fundamentals and say, you know, you're not losing your skills, you're not losing your strength, you're not losing your metabolism. You lost 10 degrees in your ankle and the rest of your body doesn't know how to make up for it. And so that's why your knee and your low back keep hurting. And, you know, so Let's test the theory. Let's not work on your knee and low back. Let's work on your ankle. If I'm wrong, we'll know. And if I'm right, we'll know. And if I'm 50%, we'll know it's a contributing factor. And they're like, hey, that seems fair because I put some skin in the game. I'm like, here's what we're going to do if I'm wrong. Here's what we're going to do if I'm right. And here's what we're going to do if I'm half right. <laughs> and they're like, that's fair. So, Gray, I know we touched on this a little bit at the beginning of the episode when we were talking about military service, but I wanted to just go back a little bit and talk more about how you see kids' movement literacy has changed over time and why. And I assume one of those reasons, based on my own experience with my own kids, is that PE in most places, if it even exists, has become uh, just playing of sports and not uh, actual physical education. But if you could just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, Dr. Ed Thomas uh, has really brought me up to speed on, on what physical education used to be, the few pockets where we had amazing things happening for a little bit of while, and then where they've, they've been a little bit eroded. And I've done quite a few lectures up at Springfield College, which is basically 
a, a, a petri dish of what you and I will call old school physical education, but highly productive. They get back to the old pedagogical stuff and they really do have great physically engaging lesson plans. And I think, I think what happened is a lot of PE teachers through our generation were obviously athletes. They saw an opportunity to have a job with summers off and wear shorts to work. And all of a sudden, I think that the, the kids who didn't express themselves as athletes maybe got a little behind. The ones that did became one-dimensional athletes and played that, that one sport. So I think over time, just by not watching the gauges, not watching things, it's really easy to blame it on sedentary lifestyle, obesity, and diet. But I can tell you this, I've seen a lot of those things. Uh, go on. And I still see some great kids come through that situation. And the difference is the neurological system. It's the ability just to skip and do these things. And somehow, somewhere, I think they missed that there's somewhere between that 21 months and five or six years old before we start seeing the school. There were just some kids that didn't get played with didn't get a chance to run and jump and fall down and scrape a knee, not allowed to climb the tree, got to wear the helmet if you're going on the swing set. And, and you know, I, I just think that we let, we didn't let kids beat themselves up like, like they should. And I think there's a, there's a um, point of diminishing returns where you got to have some supervision, but you've got to let them explore their own limits or they, they're going to blow up. They're going to literally see a pull-up bar one day and jump for it. And they've never held their own body weight. I watched, a, I watched a young girl today. She never held her own body weight with her grip before. And she had no idea she couldn't until she proved it. Meaning she had no preloaded self-gauging behavior because either she wasn't put in an environment where she could explore or she just, she just chose not to. I don't, I don't know what it was, but I take it back to that that neurological exposure where your hands and your feet and your spine are just all communicating. And whether I introduce a new activity or not, you're boom, you're there. You got it. So. You know, our mutual friend, Erwan uh, LaCour, movement educator and the founder of MoveNet has done some informal polling and finds that kids who can do a pull-up or people who can do a pull-up grew up with a tree in their backyard and they've just always <laughs> And that, that climbing was just part of the language of, of playing around. You know, one of the things that I hear is this sort of just this, this deficit of just exposure, right? Especially in these very, very crucial times. And I just want to point out that for people who are listening, this can be very simple. One of the <clears throat> heads of a big physical therapy, physical therapy school, she was the pediatric head and chair and pulled me aside. And she said, could you please, please, every chance you get, say, after 18 months, you don't get to be in a stroller. You know, that, oh my goodness. And she said, literally, she says, and, you know, your child cannot be in a car carrier unless they're in a car. They need to be on the ground. And I think what we're, one of the things that we can do by being more granular about these behaviors that you're saying about just exposure and input, just straight up input, is these kinds of behaviors where, you know, if your kid is on the ground or if you're holding your child, I know that's a pain in the butt, trust me, but your child is, constantly undergoing writing reactions on your posture, up in gravity, feeling, having to react. And it's subtle. And even just the the walking or the carrying of the baby and not just, you know, defaulting to the stroller so we can get there more effectively, those things all aggregate into net positive input, which is 
thousands and tens of thousands of exposures. I, I mean, what a, a, an infant you said would fall how many times, right? And that toddlers are walking 2.3 miles a day in that terrifying may fall down on my face gate. It's incredible. The While amount of exposure. That's right. So, you know, I, I hear this, this, this piece, and I, I really want people to understand that we, there's not going to be a significant intervention moment. There's not a shoe you can buy. There's not a thing. It's a way of looking at the way that you're living with your kids and the way that you're engaging in the environment. Is that what I'm hearing from you? That's exactly what you're hearing from me. And I'm going to go one step further, whether you go as far back as uh, Plato, the philosopher, and, and, and I think his name actually means broad shoulders because I think he was a, a wrestler or something like that. But he basically talked about, and, and, and I forget the, the way he said it, but children till about six or seven should literally be allowed to run and explore whatever world they're growing up in. Do not worry about formal education. Do not worry about arithmetic. Do not worry about sentence structure. They need to be able to communicate, but all the talking you're going to do is that. After about six or seven, they will have burned off enough of those wiggles to actually sit and learn something from an engaging teacher. Um, right down the road here in Virginia, we know Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death wrote the exact same thing in his memoirs and his autobiography he had a bunch of kids um but he let them run wild till they were six they're finding turtles they're in the creek they're getting their first case of poison ivy they're climbing trees they they fall out of trees but he said i did not impress upon them formal education meaning i'm as far from baby einstein as you can get the funny thing he said is by the time they had been introduced to academics for two years, they were ahead of the kids that were starting to be taught at five and six. Meaning if you just let them do their physical development first, they will imprint some patterns. They will imprint ways to use their right and left hemisphere better. Well, part of ADHD and dyslexia, I have both, is the fact that you're not using both your hemispheres together and Lee and I did some early research at a school that dealt with both those things that was trying different things with physical education in class to see. Here's what we did. They had one group of kids doing yoga, one group of kids doing conventional physical education. We put the rest of the kids through movement screens. So kids that couldn't crawl very well or couldn't do their rotary stability, we would give them a tunnels and tubes course. Kids that basically didn't like lunging, we would give them striding things they must have to do. Kids that didn't like um, uh, crawling on their belly or whatever the test said, we would expose them in engaging ways to the exact pattern they were avoiding or not doing well. And not only did they self-correct the pattern, they were the only group that had an increase in classroom cognitive scores with no change in the lesson plan. So you can get the left and right half of your brain to work together by basically crossing the midline. I don't care whether you're playing with nunchucks, Indian clubs, or throwing rocks. It'll, it, it happens. And so I think that, you know, for, for a few thousand years, we've got very wise people saying, if you're trying to make your kids smart, don't start too early because let that neurological system develop and then we can engage art and music and colors and calculations and stuff like that. But if they take off running and trip <laughs> just because they're <laughs> chewing gum, I'm not really quite sure that calculus is going to help them 
get that back. And I want to be clear here. First of all, I hear nunchucks and foam rollers are the solution. That's it. So first of all, uh, but second, really <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is this is not about exercise. This is not about sports specific skill. This is just about having this, the syntax and the grammar and the lexicon of a m lifetime of movement. And if I'm going to be a thorough mover when I'm a hundred and by all, by all indications, we're all going to be a hundred, no problem, whether we like it or not, how we start really does ultimately matter where we end. Am I hearing that right? You, you are there. There is a, there is a window of time, uh, that, that if you'll just let them, let them get dirty and run around, the neurological system is so locked in. Think about this. You don't forget how to ride a bike if you learn early enough. Now, if you learn later, it's going to take longer. You probably won't forget then either. But the earlier those things are done and, and you don't have to do them great. You just have to do them. Then you can develop any one of those things. So the more stuff we can get your neurological system to do before six, the bigger that quiver is. So any one of those things that does seem pretty cool five years from now, you've already got that canvas half painted and now you just come in and, and, and do those those details amazing i just keep thinking of the word free play free play free play it's, yeah, it's and beautiful and, and <laughs> i'm not i'm i mean the words, exercise has single word. built my house right but i'm not anti-exercise unless it's replacing nutrient-rich activity because i've always said we strategically use exercise to get you out of pain or give you a competitive advantage. We use exercise like supplement. You need more vitamin C. We got to get more selenium in you. We've got people, if you, if you missed a day of a thousand milligrams of vitamin C and you catch a cold, I'm like, there's something else wrong. Well, I know people, if they don't, if they miss two weeks worth of working out, they can't walk. And I'm like, Ugh. I think you need a more active life and a more specific exercise regime, meaning you just need to be more generally active. And then we need to focus your exercise on that dysfunction, disability problem that you have. So the strategic use of exercise to get your body to jumpstart a bad pattern or overcome a mobility problem or regain stability, totally into that. And I realized that a lot of adults have embraced a life of exercise, but the funny thing is they, I know a lot of people at the gym three times a week. We cannot go out and, and cut wood or go on a, a hike on Saturday. They just don't have the work capacity to do it because what people don't realize in an exercise environment, they keep making exercise more comfortable and convenient until basically they show up to the gym, park as close as they can, walk on a treadmill with headphones in while watching yeah. Fox TV. They're not engaged in their movement and Unfortunately, you can't do math like that. You gotta be engaged. You can't do music or art like that. But what people are doing is disengaging their self from movement. They know they need to do it, but a rat on the wheel is not fit enough to get away from a cat. But a rat in real life has to. They both yeah, I mean, run every just, day. <laughs> it's, just, it's just unconscious movement. It is, it is. And so no learning occurred. You're right. You did burn off enough calories to have an extra beer at dinner. I will not dispute that. That's a mathematical uh, fact. What I'm saying is you're not a different version of yourself. You, but Kelly, you've seen this. You've, you've worked with people 30 minutes from now, they're going to be a different version of themselves. And, and it's that transformation, whether it's neurological in a few sessions or whether it's tissue in a few weeks, 
or metabolism in a few months. It doesn't matter. I'm in this for transformation, not transaction. And I just see that we're missing so many of those early cues. And the kids are the example. They, they don't need to nearly be as jacked up as we are because they're still plastic. And if we just let them fall and bump, and the cool thing is none, none of the parents at this little school we're working on, we get a few bumps and bruises, but for the most part, we've had an injury free year and the few problems we had, I haven't had a mom in there, you know, uh, saying it because number one, you can't fire me. I'm here for free. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, you know, um, that reminds me of a, I, that reminds me of a really quick story I want to tell you, which is when Caroline was like three years old in preschool, she was running across the pre, uh, preschool class and laid out and hit her eye on the corner of one of those little super short, like preschool tables and got a really gnarly black eye. And the school was so afraid to tell us and so afraid that we would be mad and unenroll our child from the school and we just really couldn't understand that at all. We were like, why would we be mad? She's three. She was running. It's awesome. You know? yeah. um, but apparently our reaction was not uh, normal, at no, least not no. what most parents no. do. And, and it should be known that Caroline has the hardest head. Yeah, she's yeah, a frequent she, flyer in the ER. Yeah, yeah, she's she's taken out some other kids with that head. So. Look, you, um, one of the things that's extraordinary about the functional movement screen, which is just a screen, it's a it's a movement vital sign language. Anyone can do it. You can search it on the web. You guys have made all the resources available there. Take yourself through it. See, run you. It's so clear and easy, and it's a hundred percent accessible. If you want to become an expert in it, you can take that online course, but to do it, you guys have made that a free resource. And I want to just put that in the language that people could play around with the FMS in their home, test their kids, make it a game, compare. And, um, it's gorgeous. We use your Y balance test in the gym every single day as part of my warm up. I'm, I'm just adore it. But I also want to point out that you have another level, which is this SFMA, which is this, uh, sort of a clinician level and that that if people are interested and clinicians are hearing you for the first time, which is highly unlikely, but that the, there are multiple layers and sophistication to what you're talking about. And I just I wanted to point that out that if you're if you've never heard of Gray and you you Google um, you know FMS functional movement system, you'll you'll find out what the simple screen is and how elegant and gorgeous it is around just you know movement vital signs about 120 over 80. What's your resting heart rate? Did you eat vegetables today? It's that simple. And if you're a clinician and you've heard this for the first time and you have not dived down, it's a gorgeous way to unravel what seems like very complex movement patterns. It, it just took that same movement behavior thing and, and, and took it in, in clinic. But, you, you know, what, what you're talking about is, is physical therapists have always known where it hurts because that's where you're pointing. What we said is now that, you're, now that you've pointed at your knee, I'm going to watch you do a lot of movements that involve your knee but I'm going to see how many of those movements actually cause your knee to hurt and how many of those movements you can't do. What I knew and what I was taught and what we all did, we always worked on the painful patterns, but we never worked on the dysfunctional patterns. And now we're realizing if we will just play around and try to get that dysfunctional pattern to change in a measurable way, go back and look at the pain. There's an 80% play that this distant body part that you didn't think had anything to do with it we did a little something to it, loosened it up or whatever, your body completely had a different awareness map. And so it's just one of those, those ways of how do we introduce that movement behavior 
we don't delete anything. We just add that one other thing and it helps things line up. So we know you don't have eight problems. You have one problem. And when you get rid of this, we'll see how many of those change and how many of them don't. And then we'll count your problems. It's too elegant. So, you know, one of the biggest takeaways I have so far in this podcast is that kids need to play and be given the opportunity to explore with their bodies. So this question may fly in the face of that amazing advice, but are there people or programs uh, out there, um, and assuming our guests can't attend your um, your your gym class in Virginia, <laughs> um, are there people or programs who are doing a really good job with formal or informal movement training with kids or working with kids about related to their movement? Yeah, as a matter of fact, we've got a we've got a program going on in the UK right now, but we're going to lend everything we've ever learned about human movement to a couple of the programs that uh, Springfield College is doing simply to sort of shoot one across the bow of physical education. We've got to change physical education because the human has changed. Okay. The, the physical education that we went through, give or take, was not probably- sufficient. Yeah, it's, it's not sufficient. There, there, is a, there is a different thing. So here's what we started doing. We started using the movement screen to see which physical educators were making an impact and which ones were simply moving kids around. But at the end of the year, remember- the only, the only thing in school that you don't have an SOL for is PE. What's the standard of learning that says my PE teacher gave me my money's worth this year? Because I know exactly if my math it's called teacher- a, It's called attendance. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So here's what we did. We, we started, we literally started sending these graduate students in to see how many PE classes. It was hard for me to even tell this kid to PE because we're not doing heart rate stuff. We're doing movement patterns. And the cool thing was, and I can share it with you, Danielle and I were at this little school one day a week with, with about 30 minutes of exposure once a week. It's what these kids got primed to do the other four days a week during recess. Now, now they're not off in their little pods. They're actually creating obstacle courses for themselves. They're doing stuff on balance beams. Uh, you know, they're over here trying to press sandbags and stuff. And so four days a week at this school, they don't have a PE teacher and we're not there, but the teachers let them do recess. And now recess has morphed into whatever I was having difficulty with when Mr. and Ms. Cook were here one day a week. So at the end of the year, we went back in and screened balance, upper body, lower body strength and movement patterns. And I presented that and they're like, oh yeah, well, we don't have the time and equipment. I'm like, we didn't use any equipment. We had 30 minutes once a week. We, we, we didn't give them a program. We gave them exposure and their plasticity and the fact that we made it a little fun and didn't count sets and reps is why they played it four days a week and we competed it one day a week. And Almost like thirsty sponges, just <laughs> sucking it up. That that succulent in the corner you've been ignoring. Great. Um, we have been, I mean, come on. If, if people could pour it into our conversations, our poor wives. Um <laughs> <laughs> I lo I love your brain. I love how you work. Where can I find you? One of the, the the things that people don't know about you and that I want them to discover is that you actually are a wonderful writer. Besides the the several and wonderful books you've done, you actually have a great blog where you get to talk about environment. You take on these high concepts. Where can people read some of that? Um, they can. I posted my, all my articles at two places, uh, graycook.com or almost anything I've written can be found on functionalmovement.com. 
Um, you don't have to be a member or sign up for anything to read the articles. Um, on Target Publications has been recording me doing all different kinds of lectures and they have a compendium if people are more like audio, uh, which I am, I, I do way more audio. So there's a, there's a compendium of lectures that cover many of the things I've written about in every article on raycook.com or FMS that I've written also has the live audio because I didn't write them. I, I basically, it's a stream of consciousness dictation and there's a really good editor that <laughs> removes the ums from my talk and the, then transcribes it uh, and does a good job of referencing the photographs in there. But put a bunch in there. And the funny thing you mentioned, Earl on the court, maybe that's why my youngest is so athletic because when we went through his one week full immersion, uh, barefoot running, rock climbing, breath holding, no caffeine, whatever, Danielle was actually five months pregnant with Xena. And I think she was walking on a Tuesday and Danielle had her on the trampoline on a Thursday. So something must have happened to move that with that one when <laughs> she was still in utero, I guess. But I uh, love it. <laughs> well, and uh, for everyone, please, um, before we wrap up, I just want to say there's also a wonderful lecture you did at Google. You did a Google talk and you get to talk and see some, some good data point science around ACL rehab. It's one of the most powerful demonstrations of missing the forest for the trees that I've seen in a long time. But you get to talk about all this in sort of population environmental health, where you can really see that what's good for the goose is good for the gander. And we're, we're really talking about a lifetime of, of just easy inputs to be better, more robust, more useful humans. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you. Thank you. We, we appreciate you. We will put uh, links to all those things in the show notes. And thank you so much, Gray. And the world will well, not keep us apart for much longer. <laughs> anything you guys need because we're we're aiming a lot of what we've learned working with pro athletes and patients right back at the next generation and seeing if we can just give them a little bit of insight because it's not nearly as hard as people are trying to make it love it thank you brother thank you brother thank you for listening to the ready state if you like what you're hearing, check out all of our episodes here or at mobilitywad.com. The Ready State is the podcast of mobilitywad.com, where we've assembled the world's most comprehensive database of guided movement mechanics and mobility videos, all with the goal to help improve performance and eliminate pain. Each motivated by the simple idea that all human beings should be able to perform basic maintenance on themselves. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under mobilitywad. That's W-O-D as in workout of the day. Till next time. Cheers, everyone. You got it. Kelly Starrett is a New York Times bestselling author of Becoming a Supple Leopard and Ready to Run. He's a coach, a physical therapist, an athlete, and an innovator who works with elite athletes as well as everyday people who just want to be healthier and happier in their lives. Juliette Starrett is a co-founder and CEO of both San Francisco CrossFit and Mobility Wad, co-founder of StandUpKids.org, a writer, an entrepreneur, and a world champion athlete. Our theme music was provided by Rogue Wave. You got it! You better stop it!